0: Dudley Dursley is one of my favorite unlikable characters in all of film or literature. Dudley is the older cousin of the great Harry Potter. And Dudley is doted on by his parents, just super spoiled. And his unbearable nature, we'll say, I think is best illustrated on his 11th birthday when he comes downstairs and he runs into the the living room where all of his gifts are, and he sharply looks at his father and asks, how many are there? His father says, 36, I counted them myself. To which he responds, 36? Well, last year there were 37. His father tries to defend himself a little bit, seeing he has wronged his son. He says, well, some are, are quite a, bit bigger than last year and then to quell their son's rage before he erupts in a full-fledged tantrum his mother says, "don't, don't worry, honey. We'll, we'll go out and we'll get two more gifts later this afternoon. is that okay?" dudley is ungrateful rot We're in Leviticus chapter 2 today, and we are looking at the second of the five major offerings in Leviticus the grain offering. And what we'll see is that God's people are to, unlike Dudley, respond to God's graciousness and his provision, respond to God's gifts with gratefulness and devotion. That's our our main idea. God's people respond to his grace with genuine gratitude and devotion. And the exhortation I have for you this morning, what I want to encourage you to do is to worship Jesus by offering him your gratitude and your devotion by saying thank you and I belong to you. That's how I've kind of summarized the primary purposes of the grain offering. It is twofold, to say thank you to God and to say I belong to you to God is an expression both of gratitude and of dedication. We'll work through the text in two parts. We'll look at the procedure behind the grain offering and then we'll talk about the grain offering's purpose. First, let's pray and then we will begin. Father, we thank you for your word, for in it you tell us about yourself. Ask that you would make me faithful, that you would help us to hear not my voice, but your voice through my preaching. Ask that you would help me to preach a better sermon than I prepared. We thank you that you use imperfect people to teach your perfect word. We ask that you would help all of us to obey you. For in doing this, we honor you. Our obedience is an expression of our love for the Lord Jesus, is an expression of our faith in the Lord Jesus. We pray that you would help us to offer to you the gift of obedience. Shape us into likeness. Give us a greater affection for Jesus as a consequence of hearing your word to us here in Leviticus chapter 2. Pray that you would be with us this morning. Let us sense your presence with us as we listen to your voice. Give us ears to hear, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Once more, before we get into chapter 2, we want to remind ourselves that Leviticus takes place in the context of Israel's journey out of slavery in Egypt and to the promised land. They're getting instructions from God about how to worship him. In fact, Leviticus answers a really big problem for us in the Bible. It's the holiness problem. How can a perfectly holy, loving, good, and just God dwell with a sinful people? We have that problem presented to us at the end of Exodus 40. Now remember, God had made a covenant with the people. They went and they worshipped the golden calf in disobedience to his law, This is idolatry. They broke the covenant almost immediately. And still, God resolved to remain with his people. But there is a problem at the end of Exodus 40. Right? The Lord's glory comes to the tent of meeting. The Lord fills the tabernacle. But Moses, even Moses, is unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud of glory, the cloud of God's presence is resting on it. And we read in verse 1 of chapter 1 in Leviticus that God is speaking to Moses from the temple. There is a disconnect in their relationship. And yet when we turn to the beginning of Numbers, we find that God speaks to Moses in the tent. And so what we see, the question that Leviticus answers is, how can a holy God live with a sinful people? And the answer in Leviticus is through the sacrificial system. Through these sacrifices and rituals, God's people express their faith in God's promises and have their sins atoned for. They're able to live with God. And thus Moses is able to meet with God, not outside of his presence, outside of the tent, but in the tent. And that's in Numbers where he gets in the tent and Leviticus tells us how he gets there. Now we know, as we said last week, that the blood of goats and of bulls can't atone for sin. It can't, right? That's Hebrews 10.4. We know that all of these sacrifices, all of these rituals are meant to point forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. They're like signs if you were on a trip. If you are going to, um, let's say, Daytona Beach, and you're riding along I-95, and the sign says 100 miles to Daytona Beach. And then you go a little bit further, it says 60 miles to Daytona Beach. The signs are not the beach. Once you get to the beach, that's the real deal. See, likewise, the sacrificial system is their signs pointing to the reality. Or as Hebrews says, they are shadows that point us to the substance. These sacrifices, the blood of these sacrifices, the grain offering, all of it is meant to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ, who makes atonement for our sin, who dies in our place as our substitute who was as us before God and takes the full weight of his wrath due to our sin and then raises again to new life, rescuing all who have put their faith in him. He takes the curse our sins have earned so that we can have his blessing. And this lesson is being taught to us from Leviticus. Leviticus is all about how God's people, His sinful people, can live in His holy presence. We talked about atonement primarily last week as we looked at the burnt offering and saw how the worshiper would bring the offering, lean on the offering, slaughter the offering, and the priest would take the blood and put the blood around the altar and then they would arrange the pieces of the offering on the, the altar and the worshiper would be reminded, I I'm a sinner, God is holy, I deserve to die, I need a substitute. And that God had provided that substitute. And so here in Leviticus 2, we see a response of gratefulness. Now the grain offering can accompany all kinds of offerings. But it primarily accompanies this burnt offering, which was offered in the morning and in the evening. The grain offering expresses both gratitude and devotion. But I get ahead of myself. Let's first look at the procedure of the grain offering. Look with me at Leviticus chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, it is to consist of fine flour. He is to pour olive oil on it put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priest will take a handful of fine flour and oil from it along with all the frankincense and will burn this memorial portion of it on the altar. A fire offering, pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so you can see how this is going to work if you wanted to picture it in your mind a little bit like Food Network. You're getting instructions from like a master chef. Uh, you are, this is how you make the uncooked grain offering. There's two kinds, uncooked and cooked. And so we have been presented in the first three verses with the procedure for the cooked offering. And so you are to get, you can see it there, fine flour, all right, good, uh, olive oil, and frankincense, which is a peculiar ingredient, right? Why am I putting incense in this food? Well, uh, it's actually just there for smell. It's uncooked. And the frankincense, you'll notice, all of it is taken out with the memorial portion, which would be like a handful the priest would take out and throw on the altar, which would be a fire offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And so that's the role of the incense because if it's uncooked, it doesn't smell. Right? We'll see with a cooked grain offering that it would have a pleasant smell. You know this, right? I know this personally. Like Chelsea will make bread from time to time. And when you walk into the house on one of those glorious days when she's made bread, you go, ooh, there is bread in this house. And then you ask, where can I get a piece of this bread? And your wife informs you, your children have eaten all of it. And you missed it. But the incense is there for the scent, the pleasing aroma. Was there for more than that, but we'll, we'll come back to it later. And they take this memorial portion, which would have simply reminded the worshiper that God has saved me out of Egypt. He's called me into sonship. I am his and I am grateful. We call God and his people to remember that covenant that they have together. And then we read this in verse 3 about the rest of the grain offering. But the rest of the grain offering will belong to Aaron and his sons. It is the holiest part of the fire offerings to the Lord in fact that this same statement will be repeated almost verbatim in verse 10 in relation to the cooked offering as well but the rest of the grain offering will belong to Aaron and his sons it is the holiest part of the fire offerings to the Lord uh, this just means that this portion after they take off the memorial portion which would have been like a handful and they throw it onto the altar the rest of the grain offering cooked or uncooked, goes to the priests. That's what that bit about Aaron and his sons, that's the priesthood. Now there are some offerings where the priests get to take home and they can share it with their family and everybody gets to eat. But this particular offering says just the priests are to eat it. It's the holiest part. It means it had to be eaten in a specific place with just the priests eating it. I also uh, joked about this. Uh, Linda Dodd made me some zucchini bread last week and I had been preparing to study for this sermon and Chelsea tried to take some and I said, no, this is the holiest part. (laughs) Only to be eaten. But that's the idea. It was just for the priests. And God is doing something. This is a subordinate purpose of the grain offering, subordinate purpose of the offerings uh, from which the priests get to eat. But God is actually providing for those who are serving in his temple. He's providing food for them. See, in God's design in the sacrificial system, he has decided to provide for the servants of the tabernacle and eventually the temple through the offerings of his people. It's interesting, Paul picks up on this same concept in the New Testament. We came across it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Don't you know that those who perform the temple services eat the food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the offerings of the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. And so Paul actually roots why we pay our pastors and our leaders back in this sacrificial system. He's saying one of the reasons you, you pay pastors, one of the reasons... I get a paycheck from you all is because God has decided that it makes sense for his worshipers to, through their offering, to provide a living for those who serve at his desire. So you can see those who the Lord has commanded to (laughs) preach. The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should earn their living by the gospel. And so if you ever wondered why do we pay pastors or leaders, well, here's one of the reasons why. If you're really interested in that, you can uh, go look up the sermon on 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And you also notice it doesn't mean in in chapter 9 uh, that you pay every pastor. Right in Corinth, Paul forewent this right. He's actually using it as an example of why he, doesn't, why he gave up his right to to serve the Corinthians. He's showing them, I've loved you this much that I had the right to compensation from you, but I denied that right and I worked with my own hands so that you would know I'm here for the gospel and not to make a quick buck like some of the eloquent speakers in your city. You also notice that we don't pay all of our leaders or all of our pastors, right? We have uh, some, like me, that, that are paid, We also have others like Mike and David that are are elders also in the same way, but they're more volunteer, right? (laughs) Just like you would have a volunteer firefighter. Volunteer firefighters fight the same fires, they have the same responsibilities, they just don't get paid for it. They just do it out of the kindness of their heart. All that to say, we see here precedent in Leviticus 2 for those who serve God making a living by those who give to God. And so this offering not only goes to express Israel's gratitude and their devotion to God, but also to support the work of the priests. Let's look at the cooked offering. Verse 4. When you present a grain offering baked in an oven, it is to be made with fine flour, either unleavened cakes mixed with oil or unleavened wafers, Coated with oil. If your offering is a grain offering prepared on a griddle, I don't know if you knew the word griddle was in the Bible, but here it is. Uh, it is to be unleavened bread, made of fine flour, mixed with oil. Break it into pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. If your offering is a grain offering prepared in a pan, it is to be made with fine flour and oil. When you bring it to the Lord, the grain offering will be made in any of these ways. It is to be presented to the priest, and he will take it to the altar the priest will remove the memorial portion from the grain offering and burn it on the altar, a fire offering of pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering will belong to Aaron and his sons. It is the holiest part of the fire offerings to the Lord. And so if you can't afford the frankincense, which would have cost you a lot of money, you get to cook your grain offering. That's what this provision is about right? Why there's no frankincense in the second one. So you can cook your grain offering and make that aroma pleasing to the Lord as it's burned on the altar. And you can cook it in these three ways. You can cook it in a pan, kind of like a pancake, right? Or wafer. And you can cook it in a griddle, more like a a frying pan, if you want to think of it that way. Or you can cook it in a, uh, I don't know what to call it, like a pan pan. This is more, um, I'm sorry, bake it in the oven, fry it on the pan. And then the other one is more like deep fried. We're talking like a pan that would have like Something in the bottom that you would deep fry something in, in that way. So there's three different ways that you can prepare this grain offering before you offer it. He says, uh, however you do it, you need to make sure that it has these ingredients. Fine flour, good oil. You don't have frankincense, but you have the scent, right? And we'll see in a minute, definitely, definitely salt. In fact, let's, let's look at that. We have general instructions for us here in verses 11 through 16. No grain offering that you present to the Lord is to be made with yeast. For you are not to burn any yeast or honey as a fire offering to the Lord. You may present them to the Lord as an offering of first fruits, but they are not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. You are to season each of your grain offerings with salt. You must not omit from your grain offering the salt of the covenant with your God. You are to present salt with each of your offerings. If you present a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you are to present fresh heads of grain, crushed kernels, roasted on the fire for your grain offering of firstfruits. You are to put oil and frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest will then burn some of its crushed kernels and oil with all of its frankincense as a fire offering to the Lord. And so we get these general instructions where we're, we're told, uh, no leaven, no honey, salt, salt, salt. And we'll come back to that. Although it, does, it just reminds me Chelsea puts cheese on everything. It's like, don't forget that she has to have cheese on it. Salt, plenty of salt. Don't forget the salt. And that's important, but we're coming back to it later. The first fruits we're also introduced to here is a special kind of grain offering because it can only happen on a special occasion when you are taking in the first fruits of your crop. And what you do is you take in the first fruits, you follow this procedure, and you present them to the Lord. And this is a way of saying all of the harvest is yours, God, and I'm giving to you the first and the best. You have provided for me. Thank you. That's what's going on with the first fruits. In fact, that's in large part what's going on with the grain offering in its entirety. This is an expression of thanks. And you can see this just in the way that it's tied to the burnt offering, as we said earlier, right? It's that you've offered the sacrifice, an animal that's died in your place for your sin, and you can go, uh, God has provided for me a substitute. He's made me right. And so now the Israelites are saying, thank you. You've provided for me a substitute. You've provided for me sustenance through grain and through giving to me all these things. Thank you. I think as Christians, we have greater occasion than even the Israelites to give thanks. Friends, God the Son became a man and died for you and me. we, We deserved to be killed, to die a physical death, and to be under the wrath of God for all time in hell because he is that good, that holy, that righteous. That was the the righteous thing. It would have been right for him to do it. But instead, Jesus Christ came and lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived and died the substitutionary death that you and I should have died. On the cross, Jesus takes the full weight of God's wrath for you and for me and for all who will put their faith in him. He died for us took a curse so that we could have blessing and to show that his sacrifice was acceptable. God raised him from the dead. I love this about Christianity, that our God is embodied and he has scars. We know that our God loves us enough to die for us. Jesus is raised from the dead, ruling and reigning He reigns for us. We have so much to be thankful for. We have been brought from death to life. How can we not give thanks? Christians should be the most grateful people in the universe. And yet so often, we seem more like Dudley Dursley. Ungrateful. Complaining. I wonder, what most marks you? Are you like Israel in the wilderness? God gives manna in the morning and you're grumbling by mid-afternoon? Or are you grateful, thankful? Are you a grumbler or are you a grateful person? Philippians 4 challenges us in this in verse 14, Paul writes, Do everything without grumbling or complaining or arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the sky by holding firm to the word of life. Could that be said of you? Is that true of you? That you do all things, you do everything without grumbling or complaining or arguing? Or do people maybe think about you? "Eh, I don't want to go around them. They're going to have something that they're complaining about. We have so much to be thankful for. Christians, we should be grateful. The song, uh, Jesus, Thank You, I don't know if you've heard it before, but the lyrics, we would do well to just kind of imprint them on our hearts. It says, your blood has washed away my sins. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once I was your enemy. Now I'm seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. I mean, what a wonderful gospel melody and a grateful response to God's grace. You saved me. Thank you. When was the last time you thanked God for saving a wretch like you? How wonderful a church it is that is filled with gratefulness and thankfulness in response to the grace of God. Gratitude follows grace. That's the big point here. When you experience the grace of God, you will be grateful. Gratitude follows grace. And I don't want you to get confused here. God doesn't need our gratitude. Does that make sense? He's not dependent on our gratitude in any way. It's like uh, earlier in the week, I guess it was last week now, after dinner I gave ice cream to my children And all of them with shouts of adulation, Thank you! Thank you, Daddy! You're the best! I'm going, I know, I know, thank you. I am the best. But I I didn't need them to say thank you. I liked it. It was nice. But I didn't need it. Likewise, God doesn't need your gratitude, but he is worthy of it. God does not need your worship. He's just fine, thank you. But he is worthy of it. He doesn't need your obedience. He doesn't need your devotion. But he is worthy of it. And when you've experienced his grace, it will be your heart's desire to offer it to him. That's why Jesus says, If you love me, then you will obey me. It is the Christian's delight to do what God has said. And that brings us to the second purpose of the grain offering. First purpose is to say thank you, and the second purpose is to say I belong to you, I'm yours. And this word for grain offering is minna. It's a Hebrew word, and it speaks of paying homage to a king. And so you see, uh, vassal nations paid tribute to kings that they would recognize as their lords or their superiors. And so like the Moabites and the Arameans were subject to King David. And so they would pay King David tribute or minna because they were subject to him. And so the meaning of the word for gift or uh, grain offering here included the act of a servant or a servant nation Offering a gift to a king or an overlord nation. And so the Israelites are giving minna, they're giving grain offerings, not only as an expression of gratitude, but as an expression of servitude. An expression of dedication and devotion. So maybe... Um, we're getting close to Christmas and so this is a good example. This will, we're going to count this as a Christmas sermon maybe because some of you just really love Christmas sermons. But what, when, the, when the wise men or the magi finally get to Jesus in Matthew 2, remember, it takes them almost two years, right? I know all, all the, the nativity scenes have them there with the smiling cattle like right as Jesus is born, but the Bible says it takes them almost two years. So Jesus is like toddler level running around. And they get there and they find him with his mother and, and what do they do? Well, Verse 11 of Matthew chapter 2. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Well, well, why the gifts? Well, because they are looking for the king. Remember at the beginning of Matthew chapter 2, they go to King Herod, and they say, hey, we're looking for the real king of the Jews who has been born. And then eventually they come to Jesus and they fall down and they worship him and they offer him gifts. Why? Because they are paying him homage. They're dedicating themselves to him. They're saying, we recognize you as our king. That's what these gifts are doing. That's the purpose that they are serving is to say, we pledge allegiance To King Jesus. And so you understand this, right? You've said the Pledge of Allegiance growing up in school. I pledge allegiance to the flag, the United States of America, and all the rest. You're saying, I belong to this country. I'm aligned with this country. Likewise, what's going on here, when you offer this kind of gift, which is the kind of gift that's being offered in Leviticus chapter 2 as a grain offering, you are saying, I am loyal to you, my God. My allegiance is to you. You are my king. I belong to you. And you will notice that the gifts that are given to to Jesus, help us see this a little bit too, he gets frankincense, which is one of the ingredients in the grain offering. Frankincense was really, really expensive. It wasn't available for everybody really easily. It was valuable. The fine flour, likewise, is to show great value. Same thing with oil. It's associated with value and with happiness, with rejoicing. All of these things together, we're presenting that the grain offering is presenting something of value, something that is the best to the Lord. It's like the burnt offering in that way. It's costly. It's bringing the best to God. It's bringing the best, trying to bring gifts worthy of a king. So you can see uh, they are saying, God, I belong to you. You have given us grace. We are thankful and grateful. You are our King. We likewise offer these gifts to God when we respond to His grace, when we come to worship. We worship God by bringing Him the gift of praise. We we gather together because God has made us family. We follow our leaders because God has put them in authority. We give financially because everything we own belongs to God. We sing songs to God because he is worthy and he has filled our hearts with joy. We pray because we know our God is able to answer and to act. We listen to his word proclaimed because we know that the word of God brings life, that it makes dead people alive. We say to God when we gather for worship, thank you. I belong to you. When we repent of our sins that first time and we are baptized, we are saying, thank you, God. I belong to you. And it doesn't doesn't just stop there, right? Right? Our our worship of God, our gratefulness, our devotion to Jesus doesn't stop at the end of the worship hour on Sunday morning. No, no, we, we strive to make sure that this newness of life that has been wrought in us by Jesus Christ plays out in the rest of our lives. We strive to make Colossians 3, 16 and 17 a reality in us and to be thankful Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so we give everything, every part of our lives, every breath that we take, we do it in the name of the Lord Jesus with gratitude. We are gratefully devoted to him. Why? Not to earn anything, but because of what we've been given. Because of the grace that's been given to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because we have been saved from our sins, we respond with gratefulness, with with a thankfulness and then obedience, a devotion to the king. Which brings us back to this last part. God has promised us that we are his and that he will save us. Just as he promised Israel that they were his people and that he would dwell with them. So, look again with me at verses 11 through 13. No grain offering that you present to the Lord is to be made with yeast, for you not to burn any yeast or honey as a fire offering to the Lord. You may present them to the Lord as an offering of first fruits, but they are not to be offered on the altar as a pleasing aroma. You are to season each of your grain offerings with salt. You must not omit from your grain offering the salt of the covenant with your God. You are to present salt with each of your offerings. What is going on with this contrast between leaven and honey and salt? The text does not tell us explicitly. But as you know, commentators love to discuss these things uh, and They actually have some consensus on this matter. Most every commentator believes that the reason for the prohibition for honey or leaven on the altar has to do with its corruption or its corrupting properties. And so what actually happens with both leaven and honey is they ferment, which has this idea of a process of breaking down. We see this especially with leaven throughout scripture has often has negative connotations, right? Jesus warns his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Paul warns the church when they're uh, getting ready to, to remove the immoral brother from their, um, their congregation. He says, if you don't do this, it's dangerous because the sin will spread, right? Verse, verses four through eight in 1 Corinthians 5. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit, With the power of the Lord Jesus, hand that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so you can see this connection between leaven and corruption. And in Leviticus, we'll find, especially when we get to the clean laws and the unclean laws, that, that things either fall into the realm of life or into the realm of death. And if it's in the realm of death, it will make you unclean. And in, if it's in the realm of life, then, well, then you're good, you're clean. At any rate, what everybody kind of thinks here is that leaven and honey are in that realm of death. They're in that realm of corruption. It makes the sacrifice of the offering less than perfect. With me? And so instead, they're to make sure that there's no leaven and no honey, but lots and lots of salt. You see, the leaven and the honey serve as a contrast or a foil for the salt. They do different things. The leaven and the honey break down things. The salt preserves things. I mean, salt in antiquity was both valuable and near indestructible. And so it became a symbol for covenants and for promises. Right? It's mentioned uh, two other times we have salt mentioned in concert with uh, covenant. It's in Numbers 18, 19. I give to you and your sons and daughters all the holy contributions that the Israelites present to the Lord as a permanent statute. It is a permanent covenant of salt before the Lord for you as well as your offspring. And 2 Chronicles 13.5, Don't you know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? Right, in, our, in our own passage, we have that language there in verse 13. The salt of the covenant with your God. This is what Dr. Mosley writes. In the ancient Near East, salt represented a covenant. In Babylon, if people said that they had tasted the salt of some tribe, it meant that they had a covenant with that tribe. In Persia, if persons were loyal to the king, they were said to have tasted the salt of the palace. Arabs referred to a treaty between people saying, there is salt between us. When God's people added salt to their grain offerings, they remembered that they had a covenant relationship with God. The salt represented that covenant. They also knew that salt is a preservative, and they were symbolizing the continuation of their covenant relationship with God. And so what's happening with this soul, it is to remind them that they are in relationship to God. That his promises to them have been true and will be true. They are renewing their relationship with God. They're renewing their commitment to follow God. And friends, this, this is exactly what we do when we are taking the Lord's Supper. We are remembering God's promises and his covenant. We are renewing our dedication to God and to his people. We are saying when we take the bread and when we take the cup, thank you, thank you Lord Jesus for dying for me. Thank you for the promise of a new heavens and a new earth where everything sad will be untrue. Thank you. We're saying, I belong to you. You are my God and I am yours. A part of your people. We miss that second part sometimes in the Lord's Supper. Not only are we committing to to belonging to God, but we are reminding one another of our commitment to each other as a church. We are saying, we have been these people that are many, brought together in one body, over which Christ is the head. that, That we belong to each other. That we're committed to overseeing and affirming one another's faith. I love that, that image in 1 Corinthians 10. We read it every week when we take communion. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Because we all share in the one bread. Jesus Christ has made us one with him and one with each other. And so our devotion to him also comes with a dedication to serving one another, helping one another follow Jesus. It's wonderful to see the promises of God, to be reminded of the promises of God in the bread and in the cup. That weekly we come and we remember that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins, raised for our justification. We are reminded that he has a body and lives resurrected. And that we will also... That when they put us in the ground, that's not the end of the story. That yes, we're absent from flesh and present with God in the intermittent state, but that when Jesus returns, we will get new bodies. I talked to a, an older Christian a few, few weeks ago, and he asked me questions about the, the soul and the body. He, he must have been in his 80s. And it struck me that at one point he, he said, well, I'm going to be a soul forever. Forever. And I said, no, 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 no. You're not going to be a disembodied soul forever. Jesus resurrected physically, bodily from the dead. And you, when Jesus returns, are going to have a new physical body. And I stopped to share that with you because I went, how long had this brother been in church and not known this wonderful news that we are going to be given new bodies that will not falter, that won't get sick or hurt or injured. And that we will live forever with Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a really important piece of what God has promised to us. You can read more about it in 1 Corinthians 15. I could talk more about it, but we need to get back to to our text. Salt is to remind the people of the covenant of God, of the promises of God. And likewise, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of God's grace to us and of our grateful devotion to Him. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are worshiping Jesus. We're saying, thank you, I belong to you. When we gather together for worship on Sunday morning, we're saying, thank you, I belong to you. My hope is is that when you wake up and you put your feet on the cold floor in the morning, on Monday morning, you are saying to the Lord, thank you, I belong to you, I'm yours. Every breath that I take is yours. Every step that I take is yours. Every thought in my mind, I want to take it captive so that it's obedient to Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's all yours. My life is yours. You have saved me. And you are worthy of my obedience. You are worthy of my gratitude. You are worthy of my devotion. Worthy of my worship. You alone are worthy. Friends, God's people respond to his grace with genuine gratitude and devotion. If you're here, a a non-Christian, I want you to know God's grace is available to you. You need simply to turn from your sin Put your faith in Jesus. Change your allegiances. Give everything to Jesus. Dedicate it to Jesus. Church, I pray that you will worship our King all the time. That your lives would be as grain offerings before God. Saying, thank you. I belong to you. And let us now renew our devotion to God and to one another as we remember the death and resurrection and look forward to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ by participating in the Lord's Supper together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you for giving us ears to hear for changing our hearts so that we might desire you rather than our sin. Lord, we confess that we will fail to live perfectly Christ-like lives. We thank you that where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. We thank you that you've given to us grace upon grace. That even though we will fail and falter, you will not that you will always forgive us when we confess and turn. And therefore, Lord, we strive for that ideal of Christ-likeness. We pray that by your Spirit, you would make us more like Jesus, that you would make us to desire your word, to desire fellowship with your people, to desire to share the gospel with all those who don't know, that you would put within us a desire for you. Lord, make us more like Jesus. Cause us to fall more desperately in love with Jesus. Help us to be awestruck at your grace. Fill our hearts with gratitude and devotion to our King in whose name we pray. Amen.